0: morning. Uh, it's nice to see everyone here today. Uh, my name is David. I'm an elder here at Renaissance, and if I don't know you, I'd love to get to know you. I think I know everyone here today. Uh, today we're continuing our Advent sermons, and we'll be in Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Matthew 1, 18 to 25. There are Bibles, I believe, English and French there at the back. If you need one, take one. It's yours. Now, I know that for many of you, and for myself, the story we're going to read today is Well, known. Um, I've heard it many, many times. We've seen it acted out in movies, TV shows, on stages. Yes, we've all heard it before. And I know for myself, I must confess, earlier this week I was struggling a bit thinking what new could be said about this. We've all heard it so many times. But I want to urge you today to fight any thinking that would dull your sensitivity to the beauty of this message. Yes, we've heard it before, but that doesn't make it any less wonderful let's try to read and study this text today with fresh eyes hungry for the lord to work in our hearts i'm going to start by reading it in full and then pray so verse 18 says now the birth of jesus christ took place in this way when his mother mary had been betrothed to joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the holy spirit and her husband joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to hear your word, to come together and to worship you, and I pray that you might be at work in in my heart, in the words that come from my lips, that you might uh, be, be at work in me. I pray that you might be at work in the hearts of all here and that you might use your word to bear fruit in our lives and to help us grow in our love for your son. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started here in Matthew 1, verse 18, and we skipped over the first 17 verses. If you look back through those verses, you might have some inkling why. They are a genealogy. We looked last week in Luke 1, and we'll be in Luke 2 next week, because our theme, of course, through Advent, is the birth of Christ. But I want to take just a second to look back at those first 17 verses, because I think they give us some important information about the birth of Jesus. And for any of you waiting out there with bated breath, wondering what we're going to name our second son, who's going to be born soon, you can find his name somewhere in that list. And it's not Zerubbabel. I'll give you that one for free. (laughs) But this genealogy shows us that Christ is in the family line of Abraham and David. Verse 17 of the text specifically mentions Abraham and David. Because Jesus is in this line of promise. If you remember this summer we went through the life of Abraham. And all the way back in Genesis 12, when God made the covenant with Abraham and told him, uh, he told him, through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later in 2 Samuel, God tells David that his house and his kingdom will be made sure forever. God tells David that his line will continue and will bring forth the Redeemer. We could go back and talk about Isaac and Jacob and Judah and all the promises made to them. We heard some about the stump from Jesse. The point is Matthew, who is Jewish, was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, is emphasizing that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. The one who would come from Abraham in the line of David to bless the world. This was made clear in verses 1 through 17, and it will be expanded upon in our story today. So let's jump in and look at his birth. And as we look at this, I want to think of two questions, two questions that I think the text answers for us. First, whose child is this? And secondly, what is the child going to do? So it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So we find Mary and Joseph, they are betrothed. Now, what does it mean to be betrothed in the first century? Well, from what I could gather, marriage in those days looked something like this. Once suitable partners were found, they were usually arranged by the parents, uh, the groom went to the bride's family and paid a bride price. Contracts were made, witnesses were there, And, uh, at that point, the couple is betrothed. So, there's been a legally binding agreement and for them to eventually be married. They remain betrothed for somewhere between six months to a year. Uh, During that time, they live apart, and the groom prepares a place for them to live. Uh, Once the place is finished, again, six months to a year later, uh, there's a big wedding ceremony, and they go live together and consummate the marriage in the place where the groom has prepared. Thus, while betrothal might not be like full marriage, it's a little bit more than our modern idea of engagement. There were legally binding contracts, and to get out of that agreement required basically the equivalent of divorce. Thus, in verse 19, we see words like husband and divorce are used uh, because of the seriousness of this agreement. And while it may seem obvious, given the story that we have in front of us, obviously uh, sex and intimacy was forbidden during this betrothal period. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed, and like we saw from last week in Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary is visited by an angel and told that she would conceive. So during this time, she's betrothed to Joseph, who is described as a just man who's unwilling to put her to shame. So attentive readers would look at this situation, and you see a pretty obvious problem at the beginning, right? Joseph, who's a good guy, realizes his wife-to-be is pregnant. What is a first-century Jewish, just man, to do in this scenario? Well, many, contact, many uh, translations call him righteous. Uh, so obviously he wants to obey the laws of God. He wants to follow God's commands. And when a just or righteous person sees sin, a violation of God's law, they're not OK with this. So ultimately, that leads Joseph to two things. First, he is not going to go forward with this marriage. If you read the Old Testament law as it pertains to betrothal, you'll see that it specifically addresses this situation. Uh, I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 27. For a woman who willingly has sex during this betrothal period, the penalty is death. It's both for her and for the man. They they are both put to death in that situation. So it's not just a small thing uh, that you can just sort of overlook and not worry about. I want to note as well the text in Deuteronomy goes on to show that in Uh, cases of like rape or abuse or something like that Uh, it's not uh, both aren't put to death it's only only the man Uh, the bible's pretty clear that only the one who does the wrong is to be punished but getting back to joseph and mary this was a very serious issue you know we might recall the pharisees in john 8 right they bring the woman accused of adultery to jesus and they say based on our law she is to be stoned right adultery is not uh, something small something to be overlooked Now, of course, with the coming of the the Roman Empire, public executions uh, probably couldn't happen, uh, right, in that way, at least, right? We know when Jesus was put to death, they had to go to the Romans and all that uh, back and forth. But still, this was very serious, and at minimum, Joseph, being a just or righteous man, wanted to call off the marriage. But the other thing our text shows us is that Joseph did not want to cause undue shame. It says he was unwilling to put her to shame. He's a righteous man who gets no joy in the shame of others. Rather than seek to highlight someone's sin or sort of broadcast how he felt wronged, Joseph, the text tells us, resolved to divorce her quietly. He did what he believed, given everything he knew at the time to be right. Uh, In divorcing her quietly, however, Joseph was was protecting Mary and the child, but while potentially taking a hit to his own reputation. A, A quiet divorce... Would have meant he couldn't get the bride price back, and he could have, you know, remained under some suspicion. Yet he did what he believed to be was right. Did what he believed to be right, and did so in a humble and compassionate manner, or at least he was planning to. So these first two verses introduce the earthly parents of the Redeemer, Mary the Virgin, who conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, a righteous man, who wanted to follow God's laws with genuine humility and compassion. Now much has been said so far about Joseph. But thinking back to our initial question, whose child is this, we should point out the text is very clear. Physically speaking, it's not Joseph's child. The child came about through the Holy Spirit. Just in these first two verses, we, it points out before they came together by the Holy Spirit. Right? The text wants to highlight the divine conception of this child. Verses 1 through 17 give us long lists of so-and-so, father of so-and-so, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. We don't need to know anything about their births. They were normal births. They happened just like every other. No details, of course. But there's something different, something uniquely divine about this child. So whose child is this? Well, the text seems to repeatedly be telling us that though Joseph is a good man, the child did not come about through his union with Mary, but through a divine conception. So Joseph resolves to end the marriage quietly in a way that doesn't shame Mary. But, verse 20 tells us, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So last week, we looked at Luke 1, the angel appearing to Mary. Today, we see an angel appearing to Joseph. Mary has conceived, and Joseph is in a bind. Thus, an angel appears to Joseph in order to assure him that everything is okay. That problem that we just highlighted in those first two verses actually isn't a problem at all. An angel, a messenger from God, says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Right? There are many reasons why he might have feared, public shame, uncertainty about the future, yet he is assured that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, it may be tempting to move past this quickly, it would have been very important for Joseph. His wife-to-be has been vindicated. There has been no transgression of the law, rather far from it. As we saw last week in Luke 1, she's, she's called a uh, favored one, someone who's found favor with God. There's the Holy Spirit working in her to conceive the child, who will save his people from their sins. Far from being a sinful woman with whom he needs to cut off this marriage, It turns out she is carrying the Savior. Right, so to our first question, whose child is this? It's once again reiterated that the child is conceived by the Holy Spirit and is not the physical offspring of Joseph. But now we also get an answer to the second question. What is the child going to do? The text tells us he will save his people from their sins. The text doesn't say he will save them from the Roman Empire. The text doesn't say he will save them from every trial and tribulation of this life. They won't have any hard times anymore. No, he will save his people from their sins. And that is our greatest need. That hasn't changed since the first century. We need someone to save us from our sins. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we need a Savior. The one born from Mary through the Holy Spirit came to save his people from their sins. So, what is the child to do? He will save his people from their sins. The text goes on to say, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he'll save his people from their sins, and he will be with his people. In Christ, God took on the form of a human being and dwelt among us. And it's truly wonderful. His birth was spoken of centuries before it took place the text tells us the birth was to fulfill what god had said through the prophet right we already heard some from isaiah this morning and this is also from isaiah and i'd like to take just a second to look back at the original context of this prophecy because it is such a beautiful reminder of god's faithfulness in this story the text quoted here in matthew chapter 1 is from isaiah 7:14. in uh, isaiah chapter 7 guy named Ahaz is the king of Judah. You might see him here in the genealogy in uh, verse 9. He is the king of Judah. And if you recall, uh, in the Old Testament, after David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two. So it was the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, which had all of the descendants of David. Again, if we recall, God had promised that that line would continue and from it would come the Redeemer. So in the context of Isaiah 7, Ahaz is king and he has a threat to his kingdom. Uh, Israel and Syria, so the fellow Jews in Syria, are aligning against him. They want to overthrow him, overthrow his genealogical line, and put in a puppet king. Which, if you're following along, that would go against God's promise, right? If God's going to let these people overthrow Judah, get rid of the king, stop his line, that would be a problem. So Ahaz is worried. And he and Isaiah get together, and that's when Isaiah gives this prophecy. He says the virgin will conceive, the child will be called Emmanuel, and then he goes on to tell Ahaz that God will not let you to be destroyed and that by the time this child is uh, just a a kid, Israel and Syria, uh, their alliance will be destroyed. So what happens? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details about this, um, but in the ensuing chapter, there's what we might call a partial or sort of preliminary fulfillment of the prophecy. What happens is... Uh, a child is born, a child to a woman who is likely a, a virgin when the prophecy was given. A child is born, and God keeps his promise. Uh, Judah is not destroyed, and uh, it continues. The line of David is preserved, and the people cry out, God is with us, or Emmanuel. So much of what we see in the, in the original prophecy is, is covered. Though not, not precisely, right? Not perfectly. So in the big picture... What is God up to in Isaiah 7? When Isaiah originally uttered these words, did they have meaning to the people then? Well, they did. God was preserving the line of David. He was keeping his promise and continuing against all odds to pave the way for the Redeemer. Thus, we see here in Matthew 1, Matthew is showing his readers that just as God was faithful back then, he is faithful now. Just as God was fulfilling his promise preserving the line of David, and watching over his people in the days of Ahaz, so he has now fully fulfilled his promise. He has preserved the line of David, and he is with his people. He sent his son, Emmanuel. The child born through the virgin, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, is God with us. Here we see this prophecy fulfilled in a much more real and tangible way than could have ever been imagined in Isaiah's day. The birth of Christ was prophesied hundreds of years before it happened, and it is wondrous. God keeps his promises. He doesn't leave his people. He comforts them. He provides for them. and He supplies all that they need. God is with us. He supplies their greatest need, again, to be saved from sin, and that need would be met by this child, Jesus. In the last two verses, the text says, when Joseph woke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Once again, Joseph knew her not, right? So there's no doubt that this child, uh, whose child this is. Joseph obeyed God, he took Mary, and he named the child Jesus. So let's think back to those initial questions about the text. Whose child is this? Well, it's God's, right? Not Joseph's. The text repeats in many places that this is not child of Joseph. It did not come about through union with Mary. Jesus was divinely conceived. As just a brief aside, in uh, verse 25, the word until indicates that once they were married, they did. Uh, they were intimate after that time. right? They did know one another eventually, so there's no basis for the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, or there's nor is there really any biblical basis for the idea that Mary was without original sin. The text wants to make clear that what makes this child special is not Mary, not Joseph. The text wants to make special that it's the work of the Spirit. It goes out of its way to show us that this was no ordinary human, this was no ordinary birth. Therefore, again, there is no real basis for the Roman Catholic doctrines surrounding Mary. Nothing against Mary, and Again, she's amazing and unbelievable, but still a human being. The text shows unmistakably that Christ's birth did not come about through the actions of Mary and Joseph, but was divine conception. And secondly, what is the child going to do? He will save his people from their sins. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. The child in Mary's womb had been promised From long ago, he was from the line of Abraham, from the line of David. He is found in the prophets, and he became a man for a beautiful task, to save people from their sins. Today, as we go, let us dwell on Christ. In our text today, we've seen the faithfulness of our God, the fulfillment of his promise to his people. God sent a Savior, and it happened as he promised that it would. Today, if you haven't done so before, I encourage you to put your faith in Christ, to trust in him. As verse 21 says, he will save his people from their sins. So how do we become his people? Well, first we must recognize that we cannot save ourselves. A Savior was sent because no matter how hard we try, no matter how much good we think we do, we cannot wipe away our sin. We've been separated from God through sin. And on our own, we cannot be at peace with God. But again, he sent his son, Jesus, to save. Jesus was born, became a man, and he died a death he did not deserve. A death that you and I deserved. And through him, you can be saved. I encourage you today to acknowledge your brokenness and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, last week, we looked at Luke chapter 1. An angel appearing to Mary. This week we saw an angel appearing to Joseph. Each of them had been confronted with a very difficult and scary situation. And in both cases, some of the very first words out of the angel's mouth were, Do not fear, or be not afraid. Today, if the Lord is working in your heart, I encourage you, Do not fear. The Lord is good. He is faithful. Christ came to earth to save you, and he died on the cross to take away sin. When we come to God with humble, contrite hearts recognizing that we cannot save ourselves we need not fear. We can cast our burdens on Him. So I encourage you today to humble yourself before God and trust in Jesus. If you have questions about this, I or Dylan or Graham or most people in here would be happy to talk to you about that today. And church, let us leave today not more excited about a winter holiday or time off work time with family, eggnog, Hallmark movies, whatever it might be, but let us be those who spend this season meditating more and more on the glories of our Lord, captivated by his miraculous birth, by the faithfulness of our God, and by the majestic reality that he keeps his promises. Let us never forget the beautiful truth that he saves his people from their sins. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.